How you doing? I'm Mike Gaddy, and welcome to the 743 Patterson Park Podcast. A few weeks back, I noticed a chef, Andrew Weinsroll, was opening a new restaurant right in the old Life of Riley building just off of Patterson Park. So I did a little digging because I was impressed to be opening a new restaurant now during COVID-19, I thought took real guts. So I reached out to Andrew, and as it turns out, he is planning the, the restaurant with his partner, Lina. Lina is a librarian at the Enoch Pratt Libraries, and she's going to bring a bookstore into the restaurant bar, and they're calling it Revisions Books and Bar. So please join me as I sit down and talk to Andrew about what it's like opening during the COVID-19 pandemic, especially a restaurant, how Baltimore has adjusted the rules to help support our neighborhood restaurants and bars, and planning a menu to reflect the community and reflect the chef's own food memories. We talked to Lina about planning the inventory of books to reflect the community around her. So please sit back, take a listen. Are opening a new restaurant in the middle of a pandemic. Tell me what is that like? <laughs> when you start us off. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Just right into it. <laughs> Chit chat over. <laughs> um, I mean, it it is. I think at any time, opening a new business is going to be, a, a, you know, a mix of excitement and, and nervousness. Terror. Um, sure. Sheer and utter terror. Yes. Yep. Um, you know, you could always like, is there ever a right time to open a business? Um, and you know, it's not it's not an ideal environment. Um, but we do have maybe an advantage that we're not adapting to a pandemic. We're kind of planning for it and planning for that environment. Um, and that we can, can see what some other restaurants and businesses are doing um, and follow their lead. All of the thought process, all of the planning of this started six months into the pandemic. <laughs> so, you know, from the beginning, it was deciding on a business model, deciding on the ways and, and, and where our focuses were going to lay to not only have a sustainable business, but, uh, you know, a business that could that could survive and hopefully thrive in, you know, the, the current times. And, and you're being backed up by by the latest research out. You know, originally there was this doom call for restaurants saying, you know, up to 40 percent. Um, Baltimore Magazine is quoted um, the Restaurant Association of Maryland saying that up to 40 percent of businesses would go permanently closed because of COVID. And I think that some some real leaders in the restaurant community, from what I've seen, have proven them wrong and in fact have actually thrived. Um, you know, we, we, <laughs> I might as well just fess up. We talked yesterday <laughs> in a call that I forgot to record. And, you know, you mentioned that some restaurants um, have found a good footprint for moving forward under COVID. So what are those, some of those things that, that restaurant tours and, and chefs are doing to Besides the obvious, you know, carry out um, to adapt to, um, to to the normal as it stands at the moment. Well, I think that, you know, it's, it's not just what the restaurant tours have been doing, but it's been a huge shift in the mindset of, you know, 
the people living in our city and living in our community that you know the amount of support that they have shown for their local restaurants and local businesses has i mean no matter what the business owners or restaurateurs would have done without that support nothing would have worked but you know people becoming more intentional where they're spending their money and and who they're supporting and why they're supporting them and, and understanding the severity of the situation um but other than that you know really understanding that, you know, having more than X amount of people in a space is a luxury. So, you know, how do you get around that? How do you add new sources of revenue? You've seen a lot of restaurants in the city switch more to, you know, a retail model where they're a small general store while doing carry out food, or, you know, the city has gotten lax on, you know, certain rules as far as, you know, cocktails. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it's just been, you know, getting away with every little thing that you can and finding every avenue that you can to bring in money that doesn't require people in your physical space. I say I've also seen, um, I think like a lot of partnerships where restaurants are looking at who else in the community might, you know, need extra. I mean, it, it's a win-win situation where everybody's getting more marketing. People are sharing things through multiple streams um as far as like events and you know special dinners for different events and things like that um so that's been really interesting and fun to see also and you feel like baltimore has really stepped up to help local and support local um uh, businesses amid covid yeah. absolutely <laughs> yeah i mean i think that you know what you've seen with relaxing certain liquor laws um, shutting down streets so, you know, restaurants in different neighborhoods can actually have room to do outdoor seating when they can. Um, you know, I, I think that they have done what everything that they can while still trying, you know, the, obviously it's always going to be contentious about when they're doing shutdowns and how long those shutdowns last, but, you know. So, um, you mentioned uh, the the liquor laws being relaxed a little bit. That's a let um, some local restaurants really find a new niche in terms of doing carry out cocktails, right? Do you think that's a trend that will survive past COVID, or do you think that's just a temporary thing? I kidding. think that'll be really hard for the city to pull back now. Um, I I think that the law was a little antiquated as it was, and if it's helping um, businesses, why not? So. Uh, it would be hard for me to believe that they would they would pull that back now. You are moving into the old Life of Riley building uh, uh, right off of Patterson Park. How did that come about? Yeah, so uh, we we live in the area. We live in the Patterson Park neighborhood, um, and so that property first came on my radar, um, actually in the Patterson Park neighbors Facebook page. Um, somebody posted it and was like, who wants to buy a life of Riley's? And we're like, maybe we do. Um, <laughs> kind of <laughs> looking at it, uh, it, it seemed like maybe too much of an undertaking for us to actually purchase and, and renovate that building on, on our own. Um, but, you know, at, at that point, you know, we had this idea, um, for this business and Andrew was reaching out to people and kind of talking about it, seeing how other, you know, if they had feedback, um, if they thought it was a good idea. Um, and so uh, one of the people that he was talking to, Alon, um, 
was also looking at that building at the same time. Um, and so it was like the first property that he mentioned, like, well, what if you did it in this space? Um, and for it to, to be in our neighborhood, you know, it's like we could walk there in 15 minutes. Um, you know, it, it's not only close to Patterson Park, but there's actually a small uh, Castle Street Park, like right up on it. Um, you know, there's the apartment building. What's the- you know, Jefferson Square. Jefferson yeah. Square Apartments, um, right around, right across the street. Um, so there's, a, it's a great location for, for what we're hoping to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, blocks away from the JHU medical campus. It's, it, it just seems centralized to those locations as well as, you know, there's already a, a really good tight knit community in, you know, Butchers Hill and Patterson Park, but then you have, you know, Upper Fells, Fells, Canton, Middle East, you know, having the proximity to all those great neighborhoods. You know, it's, um, how do you envision the space being set up once you have it all done? Well, you know, in, know in you order, this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, our, our original idea, you know, mid pandemic and not knowing, you know, at that point, you know, when we were looking at the space, we had, we had no idea when a vaccine would come, when, you know, rolling it out, when anything would be safe to have anybody in the building and you know whether you know restrictions are lifted and and what the percentage looks like when we open we're going to stick to what we feel is safe we're going to stick to you know our own research and our own reading um and we'll open up incrementally based on that you know but the original idea was keeping the amount of people and keeping indoor dining limited as much as possible so the upstairs dining room where um you know, most of the seating was, is what's going to be turned into our bookstore retail space. And through that area, we'll have, you know, uh, reading nooks um, and, you know, little comfortable spaces, kind of get away, have your coffee, have your cocktail and read and kind of get away from everything. Um, while also there is a, an addition patio sort of area up there that, you know, we're going to turn into more of a, a loungy area and event space when it's, you know, appropriate to have more than 10 people in a room, you know, we can have, you know, book clubs there, events, um, author readings and stuff like that. Uh, downstairs will remain uh, pretty much the, I mean, the bar, you know, we'll, we'll remodel a little bit, but it'll still stay a bar and still stay, uh, you know, bar, coat, seating. bar seating down there while the um, original area that was a small dining room will be turned into a retail space. Uh, bottle shop for wine, local beer, and local prepackaged food items and stuff like that. Anyway, your last restaurant, Maggie's Farm, was known for being a, a real farm-to-table kind of experience. Do you anticipate your food going down a similar path, or are you thinking of something different? Yeah, uh, you know, from the years that I stayed at Maggie's Farm, you know, I developed a lot of personal relationships and, you know, professional relationships with you know, local farmers, local growers, uh, local producers of different products, you know, cheese, dairy, stuff like that. Um, and, you know, the restaurants that I've worked at since Maggie's Farm haven't always, you know, touted themselves as farm to table or promoted the different uh, purveyors that they get stuff from. But, you know, that'll always be a part of, you know, the type of food I do. You know, seasonality will always play a big part of it. What I can get from those people and what they're dropping off at my doorstep to have me try that they're really proud of is always going to have a huge impact on what we cook. How do you go about thinking 
you know, designing a menu, one that both inspires you and that you hope will inspire the public? You know, it's always been very eclectic. You know, the buzzword for that is always new American, which it always starts with the concept with this place. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be that it's going to be American food. It's going to be comfort food. It's going to be the things that, you know, people that we hope people crave that, you know, no matter what in this time where, you know, everybody is stressed out about absolutely everything and trying to recover from, you know, 2020 and the beginning of 2021 (laughs) and not having any idea where we're headed and just the constant anxiety of all that, you know, what do people crave? Um, And, you know, just good, genuine food. So, you know, once you kind of get your parameters there, for me, it's just hours of research, you know, while we're binging whatever we are on TV, I'll have my laptop open and I'm on every, you know, listicle from every site about, you know, new restaurants, great restaurants across country, just, you know, ingesting as many menus as I can and just seeing what everybody else is doing out there and just having a constant uh, freeform list going of all the ideas that come to me and then spending the next couple months just whittling and editing that down to something that makes sense to me and hopefully makes sense to, you know, the people that are coming in. And so you said yesterday that you like to do food based on food memories. What do you, what do you mean by that? Cause that really triggers something with me. I was sitting in a restaurant in New York and I had a cannoli and was instantly brought back to my trip to Rome. I mean, like that. I mean, that's, that's different for, you know, for everybody. And it all depends on how you grew up and what your relationship with was with food, you know, when you're developing those, those memories, you know, my mom hated cooking, you know, my dad worked all the time. She hated cooking and, you know, we ate tons of fast food. We ate tons of TV dinners and stuff out of cans, um, which is why I had a, you know, contentious relationship with vegetables until (laughs) I mid the late twenties. But, you know, I, I think that also that also helps me because, you know, I think a lot of people had that um, relationship growing up. And so when I have a dish and part of that food memory is something that's, you know, relates to like fast food or, you know, something from that kind of nostalgia, I think a lot it connects with a lot of people. But, you know, just like your cannoli or, you know, a Madeline and Proust or you know, whatever that book was. Um, there's <laughs> transcendent food memories. It can, it can come at any time. And, you know, it can be something simple as, you know, a whole roast chicken, which is something that, you know, we do a lot at home because A, it's really simple. It's always nourishing and good and filling. And, you know, it's, it's something that I think is nostalgic for a lot of people. It's actually uh, the first thing that he cooked for me. That was a true. whole roast chicken. That's true. In my <laughs> apartment with very few pans, grilled cheese. You know, we talked yesterday about quesadillas and what a, you know it's a different variation of grilled cheese just hot <laughs> toasted cheese. and the great part is you can put any amount of leftovers you have inside a quesadilla i feel like we always our lunch is always a quesadilla with whatever we had for dinner stuffed inside of it yeah. like and it's just and it's, it's easy and it's always good yeah, yeah. so linda you uh you are a librarian at enoch pratt library and um how are you bringing that expertise into this what will be a bookstore restaurant bar format yeah um so 
in my current role at the Pratt, I'm kind of in a specialized department. I'm a workforce librarian, um, but I've also worked in neighborhood libraries. I've been in the customer service side. I've been a manager. Um, I've worked in a middle school library. Um, and I think like what I bring from all of those experiences is a love for connecting people with information and with books specifically. Um, and then also, you know, I have a lot of experience with creating a community space, so a space that's inviting and welcoming that people feel like they can just hang out. Um, and, you know, obviously in the library world, I have, you know, some connections to bookish people. Um, I can always hear, you know, what books are coming out, uh, you know, what authors are people talking about, either in a good way or a bad way. Um, and there's also a lot of conversations um, that I think are relevant to what we're doing with an independent bookstore as far as what do you prioritize when you have limited resources and limited space and how do you call your collection in that way. And, um, and what do you think, what do you anticipate prioritizing? What what kind of inventory do you do foresee? So we do, we want to support um, BIPOC authors, uh, LGBTQ plus authors, um, female authors as well. Um, again, with, with limited resources, with limited space, you really have to be intentional um, with what you're purchasing and, and which authors you're supporting. Um, we want to keep the collection fairly current, um, like within the past couple of years, you know, we, we can't carry every bestseller, every classic. Um, so we really have to, to look at, you know, what we want to read, what the neighborhood wants to read and, and who we want to support. Which I, I think also becomes a huge plus for us because when, you know, everything in the bookstore is hand selected, um, it helps, you know, Lena and, and whoever else is going to end up, you know, working in the store with her, give a much more personalized experience to the people that are coming in because they know the people. It's not, you know, whatever books, you know, you know, different, uh, you know, publishing houses are sending us. It's things that have been hand selected for, you know, X amount of reasons and gives us the ability as new things are coming out, as she said, for positive or negative reasons, if, you know, an author turns out to be problematic or the source turns out to be problematic, we, we don't have to carry it. <laughs> and we can let people know why. Super cool. And what hours do you anticipate uh, revisions having, um, at least starting off with? Uh, right now we're looking at probably opening around 11, you know, for lunch business and staying open until around midnight. Um, you know, we have a liquor license that would allow us to stay up until two. Um, you know, our talks with the neighborhood association, you know, we didn't want to do anything later than, than one. And, and even that, I don't think we're going to have much uh, after midnight. So I, th I think we'll cap it there. But, you know, we'll always see, you know, whether or not we stay open a little later or there's a huge demand for us being open earlier during the week, you know, we'll adjust as, you know, the, the business needs to. So, and we'll do brunch on the weekends. Considering that when this podcast was taped, it was the beginning of February, Lina may have had the understatement already of this short year when she said, you know, it's not an ideal environment to open a restaurant. And in this episode, we really got a chance to examine and look at opening a new restaurant in Baltimore, in our neighborhood during COVID-19. 
But when I started this podcast, it wasn't to be just about business, and I didn't want it to be just about art. I kind of wanted it to be about all of those things, in particular, an ongoing discussion about creativity and how it's been affected by COVID-19. So next week, we're gonna continue our discussion with Andrew and Lina, but this time focusing on the creative side of food, about the foodie culture in Baltimore, and, um, about uh, how social media has impacted the life of chefs and how they work. So please join me. Meanwhile, have a great week.